Uh, I have to say thanks to Cruiser, who last week uh, took you into the book of Zephaniah, and I listened to the message that he shared, and and I, I thought he'd, he he gave an overview of the book real well. He says it's like it's a three chapter book, about two and a half chapters. If this is all the stuff that's going to come at you, and then about seven verses of hope, and that just was a pretty good description of it. Today in our series, we move into the book of Haggai and. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Repeatedly throughout this book, Haggai affirms that the statement that he brings, the prophecy that he brings, is a word from the Lord. And uh, right here, he, you just heard that phrase, says the Lord of hosts, repeatedly. When I first got into ministry, there was a phrase that I, we heard more then. I don't hear it as much now. And at first, I was excited about it because it gave me a place from which to speak. And that was, keep Christ in Christmas. And it just fires you up. Yeah! People are missing the point. Yeah! People are uh, uh, just all about all these worldly things, and yeah, we need to tell them to get it right. And after a while, I began to realize, you know, I don't know any believers who really have taken Christ out of Christmas. We get it. Yeah, we may enjoy the decorations, and we may enjoy doing the shopping. We certainly love being together as a family. We had a great time, by the way, as a family together last weekend in Two Harbors, and we have to take an early, uh, early Christmas time together because two of my children work right at the Christmas holidays. So we had a great time. We love that, but we don't miss what the point of Christmas is. We use it to teach the grandkids, and, and these things are all in place. So I got kind of tired of this what seemed to be anger in this statement of keep Christ in Christmas because it, uh, it, it preached well because you could say about how terrible everybody else was but it just didn't seem to speak to the group of people that I was serving at the time. But as we come to the book of Haggai, it, it turns out he actually is going to say something very similar to that. And I thought, huh, you know what, maybe, I, maybe, maybe that could at least be a biblical basis for using that phrase if you're going to use it. So we already read where our text is for today. I want to give a little bit of a background running into that. A couple of brief things. One, these prophecies that are coming are coming in the year 520 BC. Haggai dates everything literally to the day. We're not going to have time to go through and make all those days, put all those days in place. Uh, the other thing is I read, I'm going to start reading in chapter 1 now to get us up to where we are uh, for today. You'll notice that he, re- he repeats continually about, um, about Zerubbabel and about Joshua and one's a governor and one's a priest. Hey, I- I'm going to do some skipping once we've read that once. Is that okay? Because it just, you just hear it over and over. So, in the second year of King Darius, this is Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, governor of Judah, so here's a political guy, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, here's a religious leader saying, 
thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now you will have to understand, just briefly, that this is after the exile, 70 years in Babylon, and they have come back. And they began rebuilding the temple some 18 years prior, and then they kind of abandoned it. And it's kind of fell back into ruins. And there were inside and outside influences with that. And people were making excuses why it's not time to build the temple. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to be in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You say, what are your priorities here? Isn't that what the Keep Christ in Christmas was about? <laughs> what are your priorities in Christmas? Is it to make Christ known, or is it to get a lot of gifts and just enjoy the holiday fun, all right? He says, consider your ways. How are you living your lives in light of the fact that you're saying, hey, I'm going to take care of my house. We're living in some nice houses now. We've been back long enough to make sure our houses are in good order, but the temple, that, no big deal. He says, think about this. You have sown much, verse 6, and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with, with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. What are your priorities? What is it you're really giving yourself to? Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. Gives him clear instruction. You've been sitting around saying, eh, the temple, it's not time. And he's saying, yes, it is time. Go get it done. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. You took Christ out of Christmas. You were just all about your own trappings. You have not understood that my house needs to be built properly. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land, and the mountains, on the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. He's saying the reason you're finding your labor is not producing what you would like is this very fact. That you have languished on building my home which would bring me glory while you went ahead and tried to make yourselves comfortable and the more you labored, the less you had. Because I wasn't going to let that be blessed. So think about what's going on here. I have withheld blessing because you made your home a priority over my temple, my home. Then Zerubbabel, that guy, okay, and Joshua, the other guy, verse 12, with the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had uh, sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. So they're responding to this, this uh, call by God to build a temple. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. And then, verse 14, he stirs up these people... 
And the end of the verse says, And the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So they now dug in. They got the exhortation. Wait a second. Your priorities have gotten all out of whack. You say, "Eh, it doesn't matter if we build the Lord's house while you are making your houses more and more luxurious. He says, there's no glory for me in your house is looking good when mine is in ruins. They, oh, that's why we've been spinning our wheels here. And they feared the Lord. And they responded, they repented, and they now brought things back to where they needed to be. So now the construction of the new temple is happening. You with me? That's where we're at. The construction of the new temple is underway. In the seventh month, chapter 2, verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel and to Joshua, I'm skipping some things, and the remnant of the people, dropping down to verse 3, Who is left among you? who saw this temple in its former glory. Remember, they're rebuilding after the captivity. And the temple was destroyed as they went into captivity. So there are some there old enough to remember what it was like. And in Ezra, we find out some of them were priests. And and, uh, how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is it not in your eyes as nothing? So he says... Take a look. Those of you who saw it before, right now, you think this is kind of next to nothing, right? This is minor. This is is not what we had before. And Ezra even tells us that some of them wept over what they saw because it wasn't going to live up to the grandeur of what they had before. But notice verse 4. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the Lord, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenant with you, when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. So to begin the work, some people notice this isn't quite what we had remembered things to be. And God speaks to them through Haggai, and he says a uh, couple of things you want to you keep in mind. Number one, be strong. Number two, do this work. Don't get caught up in what you're seeing as this doesn't seem all that significant. Verse three, because I am with you. I am with you. As I promised way back when you came out of Egypt, we're, we're going all the way back to the time of Moses, aren't we? That takes us all the way back to the Exodus when God promised to be with them. And he say, I am according to that covenant. I am, going to, I am going to be with you the same way. So get going. Build my temple. And then after those three exhortations, right? To be strong, do the work, and know that I'm with you. Do not fear because I'm with you. Then he gives three affirmations. And that's really where we're coming to. I needed to set that all up as to understand why these three affirmations. And that brings us back to where we began. For thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 6, once more, it is a little while. First thing, God has appointed a time. Now, from their time, it's not immediate. 
He's saying, it's, it's, you're not going to see this happen tomorrow. You're going to finish the temple, and then the next day, all of a sudden, all of this will unfold. Mm-mm. But God does have a time appointed. And when that time comes, God will do what he says he's going to do. Therefore, build the temple. Get your priorities straight. Get the temple built straight. Because God is doing a work And there's a time coming. That's number one. Secondly, notice verse 7. And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill the temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Next thing, God has appointed a place. At an appointed time, there is an appointed place. And the place is this temple which you are building. That's the place where something is going to happen at that time. And he assures them that what they're building is going to be significant. The the temple is the place where God-centered revelation of himself happens. And this temple, we have to understand how, how it got there. Okay? We have to understand that when they left Egypt, and many of you will know the story, some of you may not, so allow me to just say this. When they left Egypt, in Exodus 25, 8, God said that they were to build him a tabernacle that he might dwell among them. And within the context of that tabernacle, he was going to make his presence physically knowable and seeable, visibly uh, there. And he did. And so they built this tabernacle. Now, what, what's the difference between a tabernacle and a temple? The tabernacle is a movable tent. And they, by the time they get into Jerusalem, or they get into Israel, the promised land, they're actually there for quite some time. And then David says, I want to build a temple. This, this thing for housing the Ark of the Covenant, where God is meeting with us on the mercy seat, uh, this isn't all that good. God says, no, not you, but your son Solomon. So Solomon then is given the privilege of building the temple, the temple that eventually they saw had gotten destroyed. But nonetheless, when Solomon built the temple, God was pleased. Because this place where the mercy seat is, where the Ark of the Covenant is, and that's what both the tabernacle and the temple house, ultimately, there's other things that are there, but that's the most significant thing, is God said, I will meet you on the mercy seat. And that Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat right there where they applied blood every year, God says, that's where I will meet you. And so he is dwelling among them, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple. And 1 Kings chapter 9 tells us that he, God himself said, this place is holy to me. You can read it in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. And so what we have here is we have, which is why I've called this message, sacred space in real time. A place that God himself identified, this is holy. And here is where I will meet you, and this is what is significant to me. And as that happens, what, of course, is going on? God, making himself known in the midst of these people so that he might be known to the nations around them, God is being glorified when all these things are in the proper order. 
But of course we know, having read the account, that they didn't keep things in a proper order. And eventually God had to bring discipline upon them after warning them literally for hundreds upon hundreds of years. And, and we talked about this Wednesday night, about how through all these prophets you keep hearing all these, these things of, hey, there's something coming at you. Hey, there's a problem. And you could conclude how, you can see how people would conclude, he's the angry God of the Old Testament. No! He's the patient God of the Old Testament who for centuries is letting them know you need to come back to the covenant. You need to come back to what I told you when you came out of Egypt. That is where I can bless you. That is where I can bless you. After, after hundreds of years of that not happening, he said, I've got to get your attention in a new way. And he let them be carried off into captivity. The temple itself was destroyed. And now they've come back and they're starting to rebuild. As they rebuild, they forgot to build the temple. But now they're building the temple. And he's, he's speaking to them at this point. But what I'm trying to get at is simply this. God has appointed a place. That temple in Jerusalem is the follow-up to what he said in Exodus 25, 8, where I'm going to be in your midst. You're going to be a peculiar people. And through me, present with you, all the nations will know that I am God. So God has appointed a time, verse 6. God has appointed a place, verse 7. God has appointed a fulfillment. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, verse 8, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, said the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. The appointed fulfillment is ultimately that God's glory, God is going to be glorified out of that place. And that glorification of God is going to be far beyond the glory of a building that they were remembering as being more extravagant, if you will. Now the glory is going to look like this. Ultimately, Christ is going to be present there. And the nations, and we, you saw this in chapters, the nations are going to come to that temple. Now, there's one of two ways you can look at verse 7. They're going to come, and that idea of the desire of nations is a person, Jesus Christ. And they're going to come to see him. Either way, they're coming to see him. The other way is to look at that as they're going to bring to the, the, the desire of nations, they're going to bring their wealth and in tribute, give it to Christ who's at the temple. Either way, he is there, the nations come, and this is what should have been happening from the beginning, is that the nations understand who God is because God is in the midst of the Israelite people. And when that happens, that glory goes beyond anything anybody has ever seen on the face of the earth. So God has appointed a fulfillment. Now he describes that fulfillment as that there's going to be a shaking of heaven and earth. There's going, to be this, there's going to be this, in fact, Hebrews gives us the impression it's going to be destroying those things that are not going to last, and only the eternal things are going to, are going to come forth. But we can understand that shaking simply by going to Haggai chapter 2 and going to verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. So we've got that theme coming up again. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall, be, uh, shall come down and every one by the sword of his brother. So this shaking 
that is ultimately going to result in God's glory filling the temple where the nations come to him is going to become, why? Because he has defeated the nations. Because, and we say this often, and we cannot lose sight of this, that one day Jesus Christ will reign. Read Revelation 19, 20, and 21. Jesus Christ is going to reign on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. And he is going to be present in the temple of God. And the nations will come to him. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. There's this magnificent place where this is coming after a time, right? There's a time frame that is here. But God is saying through Haggai, this is going to happen. So don't look at the size of this temple that you're building. Understand what's going to happen with the temple. That God has ordained there needs to be a temple in Jerusalem. And when Christ comes, he is going to fill it with incredible glory. I have to just throw this out so you don't think that I've, that I've just skipped over something. And that is, um, from, the, from the Hebrews' perspective, because the temple actually was destroyed a couple of times, and then they'd rebuild it. And right now, there's not a temple there. Okay? But there will be. There will be a temple there, and Christ will reign, and glory will come to that place there in Jerusalem. So he says to them, right, be strong, Work, do not fear, for I am with you. I think those exhortations apply to us. Now, we understand the timeline a little better because if this was Haggai, and he's talking about a time when Christ will come and he will fill that temple with glory, it's going to happen. What we understand a little bit more now, though, which the prophets didn't always didn't grasp is that Christ came first as the suffering servant, as Isaiah described him. We live past that time frame, so we can understand the prophets who describe him, one, as a suffering servant, and two, that we still await that latter time when he will come as King of kings and Lord of lords, and when that, that, that temple will be filled in glory. But understand, the Lord is with us also. We, presently, are his temple, the church. We are the ones who've been given this, this uh, responsibility of making his redemptive work known. Now, his church is made up of not simply Jewish people, okay? although there are Jewish people in his church. It's Jew and Gentile. He tore down the middle wall of, of separation between us. There's peace between us in the person of Jesus Christ. And his universal church is present. And he is present in the church to make him known so that when this time comes, his redeemed have entered into this redemptive work. So where is temple? And God is still doing a good work, a redemptive work. And I don't think it's going to get easier for us. So I think we need to hear those words. Be strong. Do the work, the work of gospel ministry. What are you talking about, Gary? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It's things like Heather sensing God's call. I've got to go minister to this place right now. 
And I sense God saying, I, I need to be there and I need to, I need to minister to these kids and to those others who are laboring there because they need to see the light of the gospel. However, I can be present there. It's the, those who work with Awana and those who are working with Detour on a Wednesday night making Christ known to, to these kids. It's whatever context in which Christ is being proclaimed, where God is using us according to our gifting for the sake of the kingdom. And see, that's where that little challenge at the beginning comes in to us. And that is, consider your ways. What's the ordering of, of our lives? Is it that our lives, we exist in order to make our homes nice and our living comfortable? And yeah, we go to church sometimes, or is it like, no, my ways ultimately, the bottom line has to be, I live for the kingdom. And I live that out by my giftedness being used in the body of Christ in effective ways. Because God is still doing his redemptive work. I mentioned this on Wednesday night as we studied Zephaniah after David uh, covered that so well for us last week. Um, I happened to have listened to a, uh, uh, a debate between an atheist and a Christian and it just struck me how empty the atheist's perspective was because he, he said he defined how he lives his life, he defined his morality, he defined all the motivation in his life by the, on the, on the uh, process of utility. He lived his life in ways that they simply worked. That was it. It worked. So it, it's, it's nice to be loving to one another because that presents a, a better place and live and we're all comfortable. We like that more. It's nice to be generous. So he'll be generous because utility-wise, it's better to be generous. Right? Do unto others as they would do unto you or do you have them do unto you. It's like, yeah, he lives out those things, but he does it out of place of utility. He doesn't need God, he would say. Doesn't need it. I can make all my decisions based upon what works or what doesn't work. And as I first contemplated that, I thought, you know, he's missing this entire context of spirituality, that there's a whole other realm that his, because he was very much just the scientist in how he approached things, that science can't, can't understand these things. But even something that's simpler than that, it occurred to me afterwards, he's, he's blowing off this whole question of historicity. God has been revealing himself in time, space, history, in many and various ways, the ultimate revelation that we've experienced thus far has been the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. It was the incarnation of Jesus Christ. At his death, burial, and resurrection, it proved that he is who he claimed to be. Romans tells us that. Declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. There's a sacred space in real time that he filled. And this guy just doesn't even see it in his working from utility. He doesn't have to give account for who Jesus Christ is, but the day will come when he will give account unfortunately, to his own eternal destruction. Because he just blows off how God has revealed himself. And he's missing such a magnificent element as to what's going on in this world because he figures he can solve it all with his science. I love science. Don't get me wrong, friends. I have a degree in science. 
but it doesn't explain everything. We need to know that. So I'm not speaking against science. I'm just saying this guy has just limited himself from understanding that God is doing a redemptive work in time, space, history. And God has shown his hand in time, space, history. And God is going to come in even greater glory to reveal himself one day in Jerusalem. There is an appointed time. There is an appointed place and there is an appointed fulfillment when everyone will see who God is and what he's accomplished. And some will rejoice and some will weep for how ignorantly and proudly they rejected truth. So friends, it's our privilege to continue to serve to continue to call out to a world in darkness as we have this Christmas season. Hey, God's doing something here, people. This isn't just a fun, a fun time when we have lots of lights and we like the songs. This is, there's a redemptive message here. And we want you to know that, that that redemption is found in the person of Jesus Christ. May we each respond. May we consider our way and say, Lord, how would you have me to be engaged in that place of being a part of your redemptive work. Father, thank you that you are so good, so gracious, so kind to us. Thank you that, that in this, this sacred space in real time that has happened in the person of Jesus Christ once before and will happen again and is even happening within us, Father. May we, may we just be delighted to order our ways according to your kingdom principles, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.